At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. to the $100 MBA show, your personal guide on your business journey with you every single day with our daily 10-minute business lessons for the real world. I'm your host, your coach, your teacher, Omar Zenholm. I'm also the co-founder of Webinar Ninja, an independent software company I started with my co-founder back in 2014. And today's episode is an extended interview, one of our longer format episodes that we've been trying and delivering on this podcast. Today, we have Michelle Hansen, who is the co-founder of Geocodio and the author of Deploy Empathy. And this chat, this discussion is all about how to create a product and business you want by deploying empathy, by learning about your potential customers, what their problems are, what their needs are, and how to build the solution they actually want to buy. There's practically nothing worse in business than spending time, money, energy on an idea, on a business, on a product, than launching it, and nobody wants it. Building a product that people actually see value in and actually want and need is really half the battle in business. If you nail that, your life is so much easier. And that's what Michelle's expertise is, is learning from your customers, even with existing products and services, how they work, what they want, what they don't want, so you can craft a better solution and give them what they're happily going to pay for. They're willing to throw money at you because you create an experience where they feel like you read their mind. I had the privilege and the delight to sit down with Michelle to learn a little bit more about how she became an entrepreneur, how she created her business, Geocodio, with her partner in life, her husband, and why and how she decided to write her book, Deploy Empathy, and some of the biggest takeaways from that book and her experience writing it in the first place are shared in this convo. I can't wait to dive into it with you. So let's get into it. Let's get down to business. I first learned about Michelle Hansen at a conference, MicroConf. This is a few years back in Las Vegas. She spoke on stage about how to really get inside the minds of your customers. From that moment on, I followed on Twitter, followed her work, really enjoyed all the great content and insights she shares online. She's also a really good friend of Nicole, my co-founder and wife. And over the years, I've realized how much value she adds to our community of entrepreneurs by sharing a very different perspective when it comes to how to do product research, how to understand your customers, how to be innovative, but at the same time, listen to your customers. We get into that and a whole lot more in today's discussion with Michelle Hansen. So let's jump into the conversation with Michelle Hansen, but I'll be back to wrap up today's episode and give a few closing insights. But for now, let's jump into the conversation with Michelle Hansen. Michelle, it is so awesome to have you on the podcast. I've been meaning to have this conversation with you for some time. Uh, Nicole, my better half, has been telling me, got to talk to Michelle. Um, I've been a big fan of you for so long because I've been following you on Twitter, all the content you put out there in the world, your book, Deploy Empathy, so much that I resonate with. Um, so I'm really excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Omar. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So uh, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, you've done a lot. You're uh, a really uh, 
amazing author. I love your book to play empathy. We'll talk more about why I wrote that book and why it's, I think for a lot of people, it might, uh, surprise them. And, and, and we'll talk a little bit about your business and all that kind of stuff. But before we get into all that, I want to know a little bit about you as a person, where did you grow up? Uh, what was your upbringing like? And did you have any entrepreneurial influences as you, uh, were becoming who you are today? Yeah. So I grew up, uh, in the outskirts of Boston, Massachusetts in the U S and, uh, I definitely did have entrepreneurial influences. Uh, my dad, uh, was a software consultant. Um, when I was a kid, he later went in-house, but so my, both of my parents are software engineers by, by trade, so to speak. And so I was always kind of around that conversation. There was always a conversation about, software there was even a time when i was a, i think i was a teenager and actually he had a contract for something and it was such a big contract that my sister and i got pulled in to help with qa on some things and you know i normally made like five or ten bucks an hour you know mowing the lawn babysitting for the neighbors you know all the kind of stuff never it was, it was like 15 or 20 dollars an hour and i was like oh my god like what is this yeah, I was I was babysitting from the age of 11. That was pretty much my my job and kind of, you know, sort of hustling all of my parents, friends and friends of friends for babysitting jobs on the weekend. And my mom was also uh, a professional artist. And so uh, many weekends I would go to art shows with her on the weekends, setting up her booth, talking to customers uh, learning about sales. You know, I was a Girl Scout too, so I had to go door to door mm -hmm. selling cookies. You know, now when I look back, there is actually, I, I had a lot of um, opportunities to learn about entrepreneurship and sales, really. And I think one of the things that you highlighted, I think a lot of people might gloss over, is the fact that you earned money uh, from a young age. Like you, have a concept of like, I have to do something, do something to earn cash. And then I'm saving up for something uh, to buy something when I'm a kid, you know, that, that idea of like, uh, you earn money rather than it's given to you or like an allowance or something like that. So, um, d did you save up for something or are you just kind of just looking for pocket money? Oh yeah. I just blew it at the movies and like at the mall. <laughs> um, I didn't have any goals I was saving towards. I actually, I did have an allowance. I remember it was $7 a week. $5 was pocket money. $1 was savings. $1 was saved for buying presents for people. But yeah, if, if I wanted stuff, I, I needed to, you know, get out and, and work for it. I mean, you know, my sister and I had a lemonade stand and uh, she's not in business, but I think uh, she was the real child business genius because she set the price at, you know, 67 cents for a <laughs> cup of lemonade, knowing that people would just round up to three quarters. And, you know, we probably thought we were such geniuses and that the adults didn't realize it. And I'm sure they they did uh, and humored us anyway. Um, but no, I don't I don't really remember anything big I saved for. I just I loved being able to, you know, go to the movies and, you know, buy as much candy as I wanted or, you know, go shopping at the mall. Uh in retrospect, I could have been much more responsible with my money uh, as a kid. You know, I have friends who I remember they invested in certificates of deposit and stuff like that. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I was not that responsible. That is crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. When I was growing up, I, I I used to save for things. And then when I bought whatever I was saving for, whatever was like a game or a toy or something, 
And I remember vividly when I would go and make that purchase in the store, I would have like this sense of depression. Like, I don't think I'm happy that I bought it. Like, you know, like now my money's gone, you know, like, (laughs) and, and it's funny because, um, a lot of my friends make fun of me because retail therapy doesn't work on me. Like, I just, I don't like, like, I like buying gifts for other people, but I just, I, maybe it was something I, I, I picked up when I was a kid. Um, has your relationship with money changed as you grow, as you grow older and as you now have a business and things like that? Yeah, I would say I've definitely become much more financially responsible than I used to be. I don't think I was irresponsible per se. Like I never got into debt or anything like that. I mean, I was a child. I mean, I guess I could have loaned money from my sister or whatnot. Uh, she probably would have loaned shark to me. So, you know, when I was a kid, I, I was, I was pretty spend happy. You know, I would just, spend my babysitting money on candy at the movies and new jeans or whatever. And I didn't really start saving in, in, in a a, um, meaningful way until I was going off to college. And, Mm. you know, I remember I I basically everything I made in the, in the job and babysitting I had before I went off to college, all of that was saved because I knew I would need to buy groceries and whatnot. And then my first week of college or second week of college was the 2008 financial crisis. Mm. And so the markets are crashing around us. Um, and I remember everybody, myself included, walking around kind of in a daze being like, my college fund is gone. Like, and I recognize that, you know, I, I like I went to a private school, I had scholarships, but, um, you know, I went to a, a relatively privileged school. And I think there was a there was just a massive shock for people who thought that they had they or that, you know, their parents basically had done the right things for them in order to be able to to go to college. And and in a moment it was it was gone. Mm. Um, and I went into college thinking about studying economics and had always found it interesting. I mean, I just became so obsessed with everything that was going on and um that really, you know, solidified my, you know, decision to, to, to focus on econ and um, became very financially aware. And I remember, you know, we went to school that I think it was like thousand dollars that I had saved up over the summer because gas like now was just sky high. And so <laughs> yeah. um, there wasn't all that much left over um, after the summer. But, um, you know, I had $70 a week, I remember, for all of my expenses every mm. week. And, and so, and I think that, that experience of when I was in school and when I was just out of school of, you know, okay, like I have, you know, I have $50 for, for groceries, like that's it. You know, I had to like count everything up in my head and, and put stuff back if it wasn't there. Or, you know, when I graduated from college, I I like couldn't afford heat in my apartment. Like, cause I had like, I think a hundred dollars left over after I paid my deposit and my first month's rent. Hmm. So I think those experiences for me were really formative um, in, in how I manage my, you know, finances now and how um, I run my business as well. Kind of not, not overly cautious, but really just, you know, trying to look three corners ahead for, you know, risks and, and mitigate them uh, in advance. Those are huge lessons. I mean, like, in the moment, it absolutely sinks. But I mean, going through that really uh, allowed you to become 
who you are today and, and, and to have that foresight to be like, okay, you know, uh, maybe my business is going well now, but, uh, it's not always going to be the case, or maybe there are some threats around the corner. So, um, super awesome. Um, like, uh, takeaway or even just perspective to, to gain through that tough experience. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success from before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So you you graduate college, you you're 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 trying to make your rent and trying to, you know, hopefully get heat next next month and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when did you start believing that maybe you can do this entrepreneurial thing? Maybe you can do business. Was there a moment? Was there a book? Was there an experience? So when I was in college, my friends and I had a bunch of little businesses projects going. Um, even if they weren't making money, we were just always kind of creating things. Um, you know, I remember my my freshman year of college, we made a version of The Onion for our school mm. uh, anonymously, which is like a humor blog for anyone who's not familiar with The Onion. And yeah. Um, and we didn't make any money from it, but it went viral around the campus. And that feeling of like, I made something and then all of these people are talking about it and they're laughing, you know, they're getting value out of it. Yeah. Like, I think that kind of a feeling is the most important roots of early entrepreneurship is to get this feeling that I made something and other people are using it. Other people are enjoying it holy crap, this is a cool feeling, yeah. right? And just like chasing that feeling and understanding, oh, okay, so they really liked this piece and this one didn't go as well. Why Why was that? Like, and then trying things out and seeing, oh, okay, this one hits again, like, and trying to find some sort of repeatable process. I think that's the kind of, the almost addiction of entrepreneurship um, is that experimental process of seeing what hits and what doesn't. And so we actually had a had a variety of of sort of, blogs and stuff that we made through college, some of which made money uh, from advertising. Uh, we started a consulting, a social media consulting business at one point. Um, I think I made $300 a month from that one at one point. So that one was pretty good for a college student just to be yeah. getting paid 300 bucks a month to be on Facebook. And so, but, but it didn't really occur to me that like I would do that full time. Like that was just a really cool thing. And I added it to my resume, but it was never... It never seemed to have full-time potential. And I wonder if that's because I had that kind of traumatic experience of the financial crisis when it was like, you need a job. Like, like it was it, like from that point on, it became your number one goal in college is to graduate with a job. Like mm. that is the goal because all of our friends are graduating, didn't have jobs, like had to move back home, not working in their fields. And I was like, that's, that's not going to be me. Um, and so I viewed those kind of entrepreneurial projects as a way to build my resume to get a job when I graduated. Right. Um, and, and that was pretty much my perspective for a while. I still had, you know, little projects going on, but it was always like the focus was have a stable, you know, job, uh, job, job. Right. Um, and it, it took me a really long time to come around to the idea that, I could be responsible for my own income or my, my family's income, like to take on that responsibility. Um, 
really took me a long time to get used to, which I think often surprises people because people see entrepreneurs and they think, oh, you've been, you know, running lemonade stands since you were four or five. Of course, you always dreamt of running your own business and you never wanted to work for anybody else. And like, you've always just had good ideas or whatever. And I'm like, no, like I've had ideas that, that failed and it really, and ones that went well, but it really took me a long time to get used to the idea that uh, I could carry that responsibility of my income myself. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and I resonated so much what you said. Uh, firstly, with that concept of the magic of entrepreneurship, the idea of creating something out of thin air. I was really mesmerized by this concept. Like for me, uh, I just saw business as like just a bunch of experiments like you, like some side projects, try to hustle a few bucks so I can have a better uh, weekend or something, you know? Um, and through that process, that kind of opened the door for me uh, to learn a little bit more about what business is all about. I didn't even think of it as business. I didn't even think of it as entrepreneurship. Um, I have an uncle who's like the entrepreneur in the family and he, um, he used to come and visit me and give me books every time we, he would visit. And then the next time he'd visit, we'd talk about the book he gave me and he'd give me a new book. And, you know, he gave me the classics like, you know, rich dad, poor dad, and how to win friends and influence people and all that stuff. But there was one book that I got from a friend called anyone can do it. It's a very not popular book. It's not, not well known in any way, but it catalogs the story of, um, two people that started a cafe in the UK. And I just got this window of, of, wow these people are just like me, but they created something, had an idea and they made it happen in the world. And that really, really intrigued me. And I, I really feel what you're feeling with when you're, that idea of like, wow, you're putting something on the world. People re resonate with it. People react to it. It's an incredible feeling, but at the same time, it's incredibly risky. Starting a business is risky, not only in terms of finances, but you're putting yourself out there, putting yourself there to be criticized and to fail and to fall on your face and things like that. Um, what was one of those times where you failed publicly and learned a huge lesson from it that turned into a success later on? You know, I look back and there isn't one large failure as an entrepreneur per se. It's more so, I think, smaller ones that I look at. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, I mean, yeah, one actually, yeah, that comes to mind now that I'm thinking about this. So, uh, my husband and I, um, you know, we started building apps together and the first one we built actually, you know, did decently well. We got a lot of good local press and it was an app to help you find grocery stores and uh, coffee shops and convenience stores that were open in, you know, the middle of the night or at weird hours. Our use case was, you know, if you need uh, coffee at 3 a.m. or milk at midnight, because uh, back in 2012, you couldn't just put those into Google and it would tell you, you would have to actually remember like, oh, okay, there's this grocery store over here. Let me go to their mm. website. Let me type in my zip code. Let me figure out the hours. are Like, and if you're tired, you could do that. Anyway, that one was a success, but that's not what we're talking about right now. So the next one we did, we're like, you know what? We can use the same concept where like it's an app that people pull up a map and then it shows them things. And my husband is very attuned to hygiene and he found out that there's there's smiley ratings on restaurants for their hygiene. And he's and he's like, oh, like, what if as you were walking down the street, you could see what those ratings are? Because at the, I think at the time in D.C., I think this might have changed. Um, they weren't posted on the window. Mm. Like the, the health department yeah, had these the ratings. Yeah, but they they weren't publicly posted. 
So, um, but, but you could get them all online. And so it was like, and, and I think actually a restaurant down the street from our office had just had a rat infestation issue that he had eaten at. So he was very motivated. Uh, yeah, very motivated at the time. And we're like, cool, we'll basically just use the same code base. Like we already know how this works. We already know the people in the area like this kind of a concept when we make it. I have some contacts with journalists, you know, let's do this. And so we did it. And the day we launched the app, I had, you know, I had sent it to journalists. It was on blogs and everything. And then there was a bug in the code that the map, instead of showing your location when you pulled it up, it was actually stuck on a location, which turned out, which was one of the, just the testing locations. And because we lived right near that spot, we didn't catch this when we were testing it. Mm. And so we had all of this press for an app that basically didn't work. And the thing with consumer is that if you don't get it right the first time, people are just going to forget about it and leave. You know, and so all these people open this up, doesn't work, and then they just left. And so there's comments on like Reddit and local blogs and stuff that's like, yeah, I tried this and it didn't work. And we were actually, we were also on vacation at the time when it launched, which was another terrible idea. Of course. It's like we (laughs) picked the launch date and we picked it for a time when we were like, in flight without Wi-Fi for eight hours and then would be exhausted and jet lagged. So we didn't even like find all this, all this stuff until like two days later. And by that point it was just too late and it was, Mm. it was kind of a waste. And, and that, I think I really learned a lesson about first of all, testing before you launch something uh, and planning and just double uh, crossing your T's and double dotting your I's when you're launching something. And quite frankly, also how fickle consumer is that you just, you, you've got such a short amount of time to make an impression on a consumer. And if you trip, they're, they're never going to look back. Um, I think that's why I tend to like B2B use cases more often. <laughs> um but yeah, that, that was, that was rough. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that yeah. and being vulnerable and sharing that. I mean, all the things I was laughing because all the things you mentioned I've experienced, I've done them, uh, especially the scheduling a launch during uh, a holiday or scheduling a launch when like, this is the worst time ever. Why would I choose this? And it's, it's hilarious. Cause I forgot which stand-up comedian said this, or, or but basically it's like when you schedule things that are far in advance, you're like, oh, sure, you say yes to everything, and that's future Omar's problem, right? Like whatever, you know, just put it <laughs> in the calendar, and then it, the time comes, and the big lesson I've learned over the years is that like you got to learn to say no, you got to learn to like give yourself more time, you got to like you know uh, put your life in, 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 as a priority. Like one of my favorite books is uh, Derek Sivers book, uh, anything you want. And he talks about like building your business is like building your own utopia and like you make the rules. And I think we have to learn that sometimes the hard way. Cause we're not used to that. We're used to like, you know, having to abide by a boss or, um, a standard or the way things are. And you, you don't realize actually I can just choose whenever I want to do anything in my business, which is, which is pretty empowering. Yeah. You're making the rules and it's, it's a, it's, it's something you have to remind yourself of. Yeah, totally. I got to know you uh, at microconf. Um, I think that was 2019. Uh, This is when I first saw you on stage, by the way, you're a fantastic public speaker. I loved your speech. Uh, I really was just like, who is this Michelle Hansen woman? And um, my kind of like, uh, entry into getting to know you is through Twitter and the conversations you have there, and then your book, Deploy Empathy. 
um, which I think is probably the best book I've ever seen when it comes to understanding your customers and doing customer interviews and uh, really having um, a dialogue uh, to learn more about what to build for these people, right? And uh, I want to talk a little bit about what motivated you to write this book? Because a lot of people think about writing a book and they're like, one day I want to write a book. And what made you say, you know what, I'm going to write a book on this topic and uh, and and actually publish it and put it out there in the world? Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was introduced to um, customer interviewing and customer research when I was a product manager. When we were going to look at, you know, how, you know, how do we get our metrics to move, right? How do we move our KPIs? How do we get more people to do the things that we want them to do? You know, we would look at all of our data, you know, we would, uh, you know, maybe talk to customer support, see what they had heard, um, see how people were engaging with things and then uh, make educated guesses about which features we should build or which we should improve. Um, and, after doing that time and time again, and the metrics not moving, was introduced to the to the you know the idea of customer research and and doing so in a structured way, and it was absolutely a revelation for me. I went from a total skeptic being like, oh, we don't have time to talk to people. Why, why? Like I've got important stuff to do. Like don't bother me with this. Hmm. To it being an absolutely indispensable part of how I made decisions and actually getting towards those metrics that were really meaningful. And so when I went full time on on Geocodio, um, so this is five years ago now, I finally got the opportunity to start doing that research with our own customers and, um, you know, becoming part of the entrepreneur community, um, started helping out other founders, became somebody who was known as somebody who knew things about doing research and, and could um, give other founders advice on it. And um, I got to a certain point where I realized that whenever founders were coming to me for advice, I didn't really have anything good to send them. Like I didn't have one solid place I could send them. It was like, okay, read the three chapters from this book here. And then the first chapter of this book over here. And then this book is really good, but it's written for people in corporate environments. So don't feel bad if it talks about all these resources that you don't have. And then this blog post is really good. Listen to this podcast. And it was like, it's just like such a jumbled mess. And I wish I had had a, a book to give them that was both approachable for people who don't come from a UX background or aren't working within a, you know, big corporation where they've got a team of 50 people who can go out and do this research for them. Right. Like, so it was approachable to a beginner with no resources yet had the same rigor of the books that professional researchers, uh, UX people, product people would use. Hmm. And, and then I was like, I should write a book. And then and then the next moment was, I should not write a book um, because everybody I've ever talked to about writing a book told me how lonely it was and how long of a process it was. And this is in the middle of a COVID lockdown winter. And I was like, I do not need any more loneliness in my life right now. <laughs> uh, so I was like, you know what? This newsletter thing, I've seen people writing like Substacks and stuff. And Twitter just acquired this company review that does newsletters. I'll just like write a newsletter like and I was like, you know, what? I'll just start writing out stuff that as I'm talking to founders, as I'm talking to my own customers and realize there are these gaps and things, I'll just start writing this newsletter and maybe it turns into a book. Maybe it doesn't. But worst case scenario, I have a central place to send people 
when they ask me these questions where I know that there's somewhere that they can go that has all of the resources they need that's that 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 is um rigorously grounded in 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 solid methods um and then it's just it's just a newsletter I'm not writing a book because I think that felt very intimidating to me the idea of writing a book like I think if you had told me uh, a year and a half ago that I would end up writing a 322 page book mm-hmm. I think I would have been too intimidated to start the process but instead writing it as a newsletter um both broke it out into chunks um I just wrote about things whenever I was excited about them not when the table of contents told me that that was the next thing I was supposed to write about and it also made it a social process which meant that as I was going, as I was writing each section, I was getting feedback from people who were reading it, who were telling me they liked it, telling me, oh, I should add this thing. Oh, they have this anecdote from their life about something similar that happened from their experience. Like every time I wrote something, I was getting feedback from people. And that really kept me going mm. because it. I wasn't just, you know, locked in a closet with a typewriter. Like I was writing this for people and seeing in real time how I was helping them. And that in turn motivated me to keep going and keep writing. I don't think I I would have gotten to the point of it being a book had I not started it as a newsletter. I love, I love the breaking it down, but also the mindset of, you know, understanding that this doesn't have to be the way I imagine it of writing a book, sitting down and writing page to page, you know, cover to cover. Uh, It reminds me, of something that one of my favorite authors, uh, Ryan Holiday, has said. Um, and uh, his mentor is Robert Greene, who wrote um, The 48 Laws of Power. And Robert Greene's advice to him is like, hey, you want to be a great writer, the first thing you need to do is not write, is actually to have a great life, is actually to have great experiences. So uh, all the experiences you had before you uh, wrote this book, including the newsletter, including the stuff that you uh, learned and put into the newsletter is actually a part of the process of writing a book, which is a great mindset hack, which is kind of a great way to look at it. That like when I have, you know, experiences, these are part of what's going to influence who I am and what's going to get into the book, you know, in some way. Um, so if you want to write your second book, you know, one of the ways to look at it is, uh, you know, have some interesting experiences and those, those are going to kind of inform, uh, whatever uh, that becomes. Um, so I want to get a little into something that I know that you have talked about before and uh, kind of gets you fired up. Um, I've did a little research before this <laughs> interview weeks before. Um, there's a quote uh, by Henry Ford. Uh, if I had asked people what I've, what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse. We've heard of this a million times. You know, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they don't know what they want. They're going to tell me, just give me a faster, make it easier, make it look nicer. Uh, give me a few buttons. Give me a few features. Um, what's the problem with this quote? What's right about it? What's wrong with it? Wh- wh- why does that not really hold up in the real world? Before I answer that, can I add something uh, sure. to be added into our previous uh, question right there? We were talking earlier about how when you're an entrepreneur, you make the rules for how you work. And... I realized going into the idea of writing a book that I was assuming the other rules that people have also applied to me about you need to go and lock yourself in a closet for a year and a half 
get up at 4 a.m. every day, you know, bang out three hours of writing every day. And I I just knew that didn't work for me. And and my initial response was, well, then I can't write a book. But then I remembered that that entrepreneurial ethos of, wait a minute, no, I can just do this my own way. Mm. I can do this in a way that works for me. I can I can write this book in a social way. I can write it in a piecemeal way. I can write it whenever the motivation for a particular topic strikes me. Like I have ADHD and I'm quite open about that, which means that sitting down and, you know, looking at a table of contents from chapters one through 15 and writing them in that order, that is just not going to work. Mm. Right. I needed to write this as I was interested, as I was excited. Um, and so I applied my own rules to writing the book. And that was the breakthrough for me of remembering that I got to write the rules. That's inspiring. I love that. So good. <laughs> so, so Henry Ford, the Henry Ford quote. Okay. So anybody who has ever uh, suggested the idea of doing any sort of research, talking to customers in any way, taking their feedback into account has probably gotten the retorts that, well, if Henry Ford had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And to which you're supposed to just stand there and, and, you know, tell this person how brilliant they are because they're quoting Henry Ford. Right. So there's a lot of problems with this quote. The first one is that it assumes that Henry Ford invented the car and he didn't. No, he didn't. <laughs> no, he didn't. I'm a car guy. Uh, I know that. <laughs> Daimler and Benz invented the car, right? Daimler invented the engine. Uh, Benz invented the first car. Uh, actually, his wife was the first user tester. And was, she drove it like 80 kilometers or something to visit her mother, like invented like brake pads in the process. Like amazing story. Anyway, but that was like the 1800s. So first of all, Ford didn't invent the car. So... Second of all, people would not have wanted faster horses. So around the turn of the century, cities were knee deep in horse manure. Mm. Um, actually, you know, the the, the sort of old uh, gentlemanly tradition that the man walks on the left hand side of a woman on the sidewalk. You may have heard that's to prevent the woman from getting mud splashed on her. That is a Victorian euphemism for manure. Because cities were piled high, not only with manure, but also with dead horses. Because when the horses died from being carried through the streets, they would just leave them there. So, and there were cities that had streets, New York, London, big cities that were impassable because there was so much manure in the cities. Um, a massive percentage of U.S. agricultural production, I want to say it was something like like 30 or 40 percent mm. just went to feeding horses around the turn of the century people used to be able to used to work that, that the cities would sell the manure to the farmers they would grow stuff for the horses and and then there was kind of this cycle there but there were so many horses around the turn of the century that they couldn't even sell the manure so it just piled up in the city so then you've got all of these diseases you have the just the the disgust of it, right? Yeah. Like cities were used a lot grosser than they are now. And so if anything, if he had asked people what they wanted, they would not have said a faster horse. They would have said a horse that doesn't go to the bathroom as much. Yeah, that's really what they wanted. <laughs> and if they had said a faster horse, the average speed of a carriage going through central London, I want to say in the turn of the century, 
was eight miles an hour. The average speed of a car going through central London right now is eight miles an hour. Mm. So those weren't the problems they would have asked for um, solutions to. Indeed, at the, at the, by the time Ford came along, cars already existed and they were basically a rich man's toy at that point. People probably would have wanted a car. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, and not to discredit Ford, you know, he was the basically the inventor of the modern assembly line, which he observed after, I believe, walking through a slaughterhouse in Chicago and seeing how that process was going, realizing that could be applied to cars and make cars cheaper because at that point they were built bespoke, you know, yeah, um, one piece at a time. Yeah, right. Exactly. So. He is a he is a brilliant inventor in his own right. He did not invent the car. Um, but the irony of this quote is that Ford indeed did not believe in the value of customer feedback. And uh, you know, his great innovation at the beginning was every Model T rolls off the line, it's the exact same. They're all black, they all have the same features, and that was what allowed him to sell them um so cheaply. But he was also obstinate about those things. Yeah. So they were all black. So even when other car makers allowed people to have their cars in color, um, what an indulgence. He said no. Um, GM introduced the idea of financing. Ford wanted all of the payment up front, which limited his customer base. Instead, GM um, figured out that you can just allow people to have a down payment and then pay it off. Um all of these innovations were happening around them to the point where I believe it was in 1915 and Henry Ford, uh, very successful at this point was off on vacation in Europe and his top engineer who was actually behind a lot of the innovations that also get that credited to Ford. For example, I think he was the first one to use Valadium steel in cars. Um, anyway, he, and I believe it was one of the Dodge brothers completely rebuilt the car with all of these things that they had learned, you know, that people wanted from the other car manufacturers, you know, had things like um, a windscreen and Ford got back from his vacation and they were expecting their boss to be so excited that they had, you know, (laughs) this brand new car. He took a sledgehammer to it and destroyed the car. And he said that the Model T was the perfect car and no other car needed to exist. And he was able to ride that though for a while. But by the early 1920s, GM is picking up steam. There's colors, you know, there's uh, windshields, there's more doors. There's, there's, you know, there's that people can roll down their windows. They can pay with financing. And by the early 1920s, Ford's market share starts to tank. Um, And in Indeed, Ford went from having basically 90% market share to completely cratering and Ford actually throughout the rest of the 20th century never recovered the market share Mm -hmm. that they lost to GM in 1928. So if Ford had actually listened to people or observed what they liked or experimented with what they liked, he would have been able to retain that dominant first mover position that he enjoyed for the first 15, 20 years of mass automobiles so it's actually it's a really terrible quote to to give someone um but i think it's important to think about why someone might say this and it's probably because they're scared of doing something differently they're probably a lot like i was uh you know almost 10 years ago saying 
I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get this business going. I've got all these things, metrics <laughs> I have to hit. There is money on the line. I don't have time to like sit Innovate. down and talk yeah. to people. Yeah. Right. Like I thought I was innovating. Yeah. Right. But I was like, I, the customers aren't going to tell me what that, like they don't, they don't have anything to add to this. All they need to do is just buy stuff. Right. <laughs> That's their job. I'm doing my job of being the, you know, brilliant product leader. Who's got all the ideas, right? That's my role here. Their role is to just be thankful and buy. Right. No. Actually, when you bring customers into the process, you and you learn about what their process is, what are they trying to do? What are the constraints that they're living under? You can learn things that allow you to either sell a product that better suits their needs. So it's ones that they're going to keep using for a long time and keep paying you for for a long time. You learn what their situation is. So you can see, oh, they would buy the car, but they don't have all of the money right now. They do have a good job that would allow them to pay it off later, though. Mm. Right. The customer wouldn't have come to you and said, I would like to be able to give a deposit and then pay in 20 installments. Right. But they would say, I just can't pay for all of it right now. Right. Right. And then it is up to you as the entrepreneur to take that need that they're expressing, that situation that they're in, that process they're going through and those goals that they have and turn that into a business and turn that into the product. So actually, I think it's a it's a cautionary tale because totally if Ford actually had observed and listened to customers, he could have retained his dominant market position. Instead, he just completely surrendered it to GM. Totally. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. I love the fact that you broke down that his inability to see that there are maybe things you can learn from your customers, things you can learn from even your competitors is what causes downfall. Um, and a lot of people kind of take this quote and they also like uh, say, well, you know, Steve Jobs is the same way. And Elon Musk is like this too. Like, no, if you ever read anything about what uh, uh, of Apple or even um, Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of Jobs, you know, Steve Jobs, his brilliance was being able to take ideas and from different markets, from different products and bringing it into Apple, whether it's Xerox or whether it's, you know, the Palm Pilot, whether, you know, like he, he didn't really invent anything new. He just took the good of different products and, and brought them in. And he definitely can, like when we say listen to customer feedback, it doesn't mean just following them blindly, like you're mentioning, like, but you have to take it in consideration and make your decisions based on what you're hearing. Um, and, what I've learned from your work is that those interviews, those discussions, um, at the very least, what I get out of it is incredible uh, data and information for marketing. Like I know exactly the language to use when I'm putting my sales pages together because I can just look at the transcript of the video that I, the video call I had with one of my customers who was struggling with a problem and was able to solve it with my software. And the words I would use. I'm too much in the weeds. I'm too much, I'm too close to the product, right? I'm using the terminology I'm talking with my team and things like that. But then 
you know, I hear from my customer and I'm like, yes, it's exactly how they articulated it. And there's a good chance that other people are thinking about this problem. Um, so at the very minimum, what you're going to get out of this is great copy for your sales pages. So, um, I want to thank you for that. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, I think, cause we are so we're like, we're in our products and services every single day and we know what we're selling. We know what we're building, but that's not always what people are buying. Yeah. Right. They have their own set of goals that they're trying to accomplish. And I think only by understanding the process that they're going through and the goals that they're trying to achieve, can we write something or build something that resonates with them in a way that they really understand that makes them feel like we understand them and have a product, have a service that is going to help them with those problems they have. And I want to give an example of the application of what you're talking about, because sometimes it's not super clear. So I want to give an example. So uh, our software webinar ninja, you know, Nicole was applying a lot of things she read in your book, doing customer interviews. Uh, one of the things that the customers were telling us, because we saw customers leaving and we had a bit of a churn problem and we wanted to fix this problem. And one of, one of the biggest reasons why they were leaving is they would say, I'm just not using the software right now, but I, I'm going to be using it next month or I'm, you know, and it was kind of like, well, how do we fix this? Maybe like, you know, we can't add a feature. We can't, you know, how do we solve this problem? Um, but we just kept on hearing the same thing over and over and we realized, oh, maybe there's a seasonality to this. Maybe it, we we can fix this with with a pricing plan. Um, and we what we did is we actually uh, implemented a pause plan. So when people cancel, they can pause their plan so that way they don't have to uh, upload all their data and all their information's there and all the recordings and things like that. We'll save their data and they pay $5 a month just to save their data. Uh, which is reasonable for them. They make total sense because they're going to, they don't want to just hang on and pay every single month uh, if they're not using it. And at the same time for us, uh, it helped us uh, curb the churn because we still have a customer we still have, we're still collecting cash and we're still uh, being able to kind of let them know of new features that we're releasing and, and, and promote other expansion revenue options. So just the idea of listening to your customers, even if you feel like, well, I can't solve it. Like, well, maybe it's not a feature problem. Maybe it's an offering problem, you know, and uh, you know, you, you really uh, allowed us to unlock that just by going through the reps of just listening and looking at the notes and just hearing the same thing and just saying like, okay, maybe we got to look at this in a different way. Yeah. I love that. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can apply what you learn from listening to your customers, whether that's implementing a new a new pricing plan or new features or saying hey maybe maybe we're going after the wrong segment here mm. right like if you talk to five people and four of them say yeah we canceled because we didn't need it right now maybe we need it in the future but then you talk to one person who needs it all the time and you say okay what are we doing in our marketing that we're attracting the, those four people who have this kind of on again off again need for us versus what is the use case this other person has that needs it all the time and how can we go out and find more people with a use case like them and we can shift our marketing because maybe we're attracting the wrong kind of customers. Very, very right? true. There's so many different things that you can do with this across different areas of your organization. You know, I, I think of customer feedback as a free resource that most companies overlook. Mm. Like it is such a valuable raw material going into your company 
that you can use in marketing, in sales, um, you know, in, in your pricing strategies, um, thinking about how you structure your business. What, what are the opportunities we're going into? What is our strategic direction? What is our market positioning? Mm. What are, what are the, you know, competitors we should be worried about? Are those companies or are those people doing it themselves? Right. Like can really help you everywhere from the nuts and bolts of writing a better subject line on an email to thinking about your overall strategic positioning. You're right. And the, the interesting thing is that when we interviewed all these customers, some of the customers, I say 50% of the customers that said, oh, I'm just not using it right now. When we would go inside their account, they, they didn't create a single webinar. They didn't even actually create their first webinar. Like they have the demo webinar that they go through the onboarding, but they don't have the one that actually has attendees. So that triggered our, a hire for us. We're like, oh, let's get somebody who will get an onboarding call and set up their first webinar on a call with them so that there's no excuse. And we saw, um, you know, the slipping away in intercom like drop dramatically when we started doing that, uh, which helped obviously with the churn as well. But again, uh, it's just using data and, uh, and just digging in and hearing what our customers are saying is what we found. And then just using all the other resources you have to figure out, okay, how can we verify what they're saying and really understand what they mean by what what's behind that statement? Um, which would never happen if we never had that conversation. So uh, super helpful, super helpful. I want to get into uh, Geocody in a moment. Um, but before that, I just want to ask a quick rapid fire question. What advice would you give somebody who is listening to this, is sold, I want to talk to my customers, but I don't have any customers yet. Or maybe I have two customers. What, what, what advice would you give them? Go talk to people who experience the problem you're trying to solve. And you can find these people on Twitter, on Reddit. My favorite way to do this is if you've got a list of, say, five competitors to what your company will be, go find people complaining about those companies mm. on Reddit or on Twitter. And this applies even if it's B2B software. People often think that's only people talking about consumer things on, on social media. Oh, no, you can find out tons of information about um B2B companies, like, I mean, even like enterprise, you know, pricing that's not public, you can find all sorts of stuff on Reddit because if somebody is experiencing a problem frequently and painfully enough, they're already paying a company for it. And then they're still upset that it's not solving their problem. They're going to be talking about it somewhere. And if you say, Hey, I'm trying to build something better. Would you be able to hop on a half an hour call with me just so I can understand what you're trying to do? Then you just listen to them nine times out of 10, they will get on the call with you. Mm. And some people are just so surprised that a founder of any company would talk to them, um, which is, which is always a who, but um, <laughs> I, I, yeah. And I, I love, I love the fact that people are like, wow, you're on the call. And like, and I'm just like, what are you talking about? Like, this is all I care about. <laughs> of course I'm on the call. Like I, you're, what you're giving me is gold. Um, and, and the other thing is, is that I just find that when you talk to customers and find out like what their pain points are and you can actually come up with a solution and even just the promise of a solution, it's so much easier to sell that kind of product. There's something magical about offering something that people are just like, I'm dying for that. Thank you so much. Like I've been screaming from the top of Reddit to, uh, for a solution. So, um, you, it's such a competitive advantage. It's a great point that you just made. Um, 
Okay, let's talk about Geocodia, which is your business, um, and you and you do with your partner, your 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 husband, Mateus. Um, you guys have an interesting dynamic. You're charge of product, and he does the engineering side of things. Um, and I, I think you do some of the marketing too, right? The marketing and the sales and all that kind of stuff, um, which is really cool. Um, how would you describe Geocodia to, let's say, your seventy year old aunt? Like how, how would you say, what would you say to her? Like, this is what I do. Yes. So the short answer I give to people to step before uh, investing them in a longer explanation is that we make software. The longer explanation um, is that whenever you pull up your phone for directions, for example, you pull up your favorite mapping app um, and you type in an address. What's happening in the background is that a computer doesn't understand an address. It only understands the latitude and longitude coordinates. And so what we do at a very basic level is turn addresses into coordinates and coordinates into addresses. Now, our niche in the market is when people are not only trying to make maps, but also because there are a lot of pieces of information about a location that you can only get if you have those coordinates. So they're kind of like the keys mm -hmm. to information. So for example, if you want to know what someone's time zone is, you actually have to have the coordinates first. If um, in the US or Canada, you want to know what their political district is, you have to have the coordinates first. If you want to know census data about a location, you have to have the coordinates first. So the coordinates are sort of that central connecting key. And so what we focus on is that data enrichment side um, for the North American market. That's amazing. So can you give us some examples of some of your customers? You know, this is what makes it so fun for me uh, as an entrepreneur who loves listening to our customers is that we are truly horizontal. I mean, our customers range from everything from, you know, college freshmen making their first map and using Geocodio because their professor told them to, to major banks and insurance companies to products that you probably use every day. Mm. Um, it's such a range and that makes it so fun. Um, a really common example for us is um, fleet management companies. So, you know, trucks driving around the country with goods, picking them up from uh, ports or, or train stations, you know, driving them um, to warehouses and to stores. Those trucks usually have GPS on them and that GPS is sending back information about the truck um, back to a, a central place everything from the driver's speed to simply where they are. And that might be sending a ping every hundred feet. Mm -hmm. And so that's tons of data that they're getting back. But if somebody back at headquarters looks at that and it's just a string of numbers, they're not going to be able to say, oh, okay, they're in Albuquerque, right. right? So you have to turn it into an address so a human can understand it. Um, insurance companies use this to understand the risk of a various property. Um, researchers will use this kind of data to understand, okay, looking at all of these addresses, um, which of these addresses are of places that are low income or are they in food deserts? Um, are, you know, what, what is their access to um, community services? And you have all of that hinges on using census data. Mm. Um, so it's everything from just making a map and helping someone with say building a, uh, an app that helps salespeople um, see which customers are in their sales district um, to research and insurance and mortgages and and 
uh, seeing, you know, how your uh, tractors are doing standing out in the field. Like it's just, wow. it's such a fun uh, breadth of, of use cases. And, and honestly, every time I get off the phone with a customer and I've interviewed them so often, I'm like, wow, I didn't even know that that was happening. And they're using my product. Cool. Yeah, that is so <laughs> like, cool. It's just, yeah. it's just so cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine you're learning so much about so many different kinds of industries and businesses and use cases, and that's incredible. Um, oh, yes, as a business nerd, it's so much fun. <laughs> one of the things that I find incredibly impressive about your business is how lean you are in terms of your team. Um, you have a fairly successful business, um, and... Uh, Last I checked is just you and Mateus and maybe you just made a hire, um, yeah. one, one hire. So, I mean, t- we talked a little bit about earlier about finances and risk and things like that. Um, making that first hire, uh, what, what was the motivator of saying, okay, I got to hire somebody and, um, how has it gone so far? Yeah. I mean, you know, we, um, yeah, it, for the past eight and a half years since we started it, you know, it was just, uh, my husband and I, and earlier this year, um, we, we hadn't really been thinking about hiring, but we have had a, uh, a problem, so to speak of that, you know, we moved, um, to Denmark a couple of years ago, um, and serving the North American market. You can imagine that gets tricky with time zones and customer support, talking to people, all those kinds of things. And so we had, had kind of had this friction for, for a couple of years. I hadn't really thought about solving it though. And um, and then earlier this year, my husband saw that one of his old coworkers um, who had been leading the support team at a startup he used to work at um, had gone through coding bootcamp and was looking for developer jobs. And we're like, oh, hey, like this would be great if um, you know, we could just bring him on as a consultant and he can get some experience. He can, you know, write some, um, tutorials for us, go through our product, you know, see how it is for beginner developers, mm. especially, which is very much like our customers. Um, or they might just be, you know, handed a project by their boss and told to just do it. Um, and so, and then as he was working with us for a couple of months, we were like, you know what, there's more he could do. And if he went out and got a full-time job, um, like we, like we would feel him. like we, we lost something. Yeah. And so uh, we made him an offer to come on as a content and support engineer. Um, so helping with, with, with support, especially technical support, and also writing those tutorials for um, our website, which are helpful for marketing and for simply helping our customers get started. Um, but we still keep it as a really lean team. We don't have any other plans to hire um, at this point because you know, we focused on efficiency and, you know, to what we were saying earlier about how you're an entrepreneur and you structure your business for what you want it to look like. You have that, um, you know, ability to do that. Um, you know, we intentionally don't do outbound sales, for example, mm-hmm. because, you know, as me as the primary salesperson, we just don't have time for that. So instead we have a freemium model where people are coming to us and, you know, even big enterprises, they'll they'll try it on the on the free side, uh, may, and then maybe ask for their boss's credit card. And a couple months later, I get a message saying that we need to negotiate a contract and you know get this into a PO and get go through procurement and all of that. So there are decisions that we have made um, that influence how we structure the business to be run efficiency efficiently um, 
and lean, which for us in a highly competitive market uh, is really important. Yeah. And one of the things a lot of people don't realize is one of the most time consuming things for me uh, and for anybody who runs a team is dealing with people. Dealing with people is the one of the most, because there's so much communication over communication you have to do, whether it's verbal or written or on video or in meetings or whatever it is, it, it takes a big chunk of my week. Um, and I'm not complaining. I'm not saying that it's unnecessary, but the more you grow your team, the more hires you make, the more communication you're going to have to do, the more time it's going to take, the more time it's going to take you away from the things that you're doing now that are probably going to contribute more to your bottom line, contribute to bringing in the dollars or bringing in customers or improving your product. So there is a sacrifice. You know, a lot of people don't realize that there is a sacrifice every time you make a hire. Um, so hire wisely only when you need to. <laughs> and of yeah, course, I mean, sorry, I was just say for, you know, for us, like some people love being managers. They love leading people. They love helping people develop in their careers. And that comes naturally to them or it's something that they came a little bit naturally to them and, and, and then they focused on being really good at that. Uh, we we love building product. We We love making things that make it faster for people to do things that that you know it brings me so much joy when somebody tells me that um their previous uh data enrichment process took them a whole day to do and now it takes them 15 minutes because they just upload it to our service that brings me so much satisfaction and that is really where i find my joy and um the same with my husband and and that has influenced how we build our business right like if you build a business and you you have a lot of people working for you, but you don't actually love leading people, then that's not going to be a fit. Yeah. But also if you build a lean product business and but what you really love is helping people grow and develop, then being a two person team is also not going to be a fit for you. And I, I just think it all comes back to you have the autonomy to structure your business in a way that works for you, both in terms of your life and your personality and where you find satisfaction in work. And I think it's important to listen to those things within you rather than looking at, okay, well, this is what a real company does. So I should go out and do this. I should have this thing in my business. No, it's like, what, what brings you satisfaction? What are, what are the things you really enjoy doing? What are the things that you're meant to bring into this world? Um, that's different for every person and in every business. And there is a way to structure your business so that it brings out the best parts of your personality and your your strongest skills rather than constantly forcing you to do things that you are weak in or don't enjoy. Huge, huge uh, advice because um, it does take a, a sense of maturity to have that self-awareness that you just described to, to know that, Hey, it's okay for me to want something different and go after it. You know, at the end of the day, that's, it's your life. It's your, it's your business. It's your venture. It's your time that you're spending on earth. You know, why spend it doing something or building something or creating something because you think that's how it's done. Or, um, you know, it, it was interesting because, um, I had a similar kind of thought or conversation with Laura Roder, um, a few days ago when I was speaking to her, and um, it, earlier on her career, she did a lot of things where she self admitted, she admitted like, hey, I just did it because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. 
But um, it, it's a good reminder for everybody listening and myself and you that, hey, every time I make a decision, uh, I got to remember, like, I got to live with this decision. I got to live with the consequences of a hire or, a, you know, changing my business or a product or or who I'm going to be serving. These are the people I'm going to have to work with every day. So uh, that's, a, that's a great note to end on. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, Michelle. Um, I feel like this is so long overdue. Uh, I think that our listeners are going to love it <laughs> um, as they're listening right now. But uh, Michelle, as we wrap up, um, a lot of our, our, our listeners are uh, in a business. They built a business. They have some success. Uh, they're trying to balance that work-life uh, you know, struggle where they're like, Hey, uh, my business is hungry for my time. Um, what advice would you give to them that, you know, cause you have a family, you you're trying to balance things every day. How do you, uh, you know, what are some of the strategies you use to kind of balance your life and balance your business? You know, I wrote a book about empathy and I think sometimes people might think that that's about having empathy for other people, which it is. Um, understanding that where they're coming from is valid, right? It's also about having empathy for yourself. And I feel like we can't talk about empathy without talking about boundaries. And I think it's really important for us to have empathy for ourselves as business owners so that when we have those moments where life and business are really butting heads and you're feeling like you're not the business person you want to be, you're not the parent, you're not the spouse you want to be, Having empathy for yourself and say, you know what? Yes, okay, I should not have snapped at my child yesterday. It makes sense that I did because I was really stressed from that call that I just got off of with that about that contract I'm negotiating, right? It makes sense that I did that and maybe the action I took was not okay, but it's okay that I was feeling really frustrated at that moment, right? Having empathy for yourself and then allowing yourself to have boundaries. You know, I, I mean, something I really had to learn the hard way is that uh, when you work in Europe, the best time to have a phone call with somebody in California is going to be eight, nine, 10 o'clock your time. And for the first year or so of living here, I did that every night. I was just having calls from like eight to like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And at a certain point I got to, you know what? I am waking up exhausted every day. I am really not in my best shape when I'm on these calls. Um, I need to set a boundary here that I'm not going to do them past seven o'clock. Um, it needs to be during my work day. And I'm just going to have to ask people to have a call with me at eight, nine, 10 o'clock their time. If they're um, in North America, because this is not working for me and I'm not, I'm not being the business person I want to be or the the person person I want to be. Mm -hmm. um, but the only way I got to that was by having empathy for myself. I think there is sometimes a, the overarching um, mood of a lot of advice for people who are, who are struggling with a kind of work-life balance is often a form of toxic positivity. That's like, mm -hmm. you can find a way to make it work. You can get up at 5 a.m. for yoga. You got this, like you can do it. And it's like, no, man, like you don't have to push yourself more. You don't have to tell yourself you should be grateful. You don't have to tell yourself you should be happy that you have to have a call at eight o'clock at night because it's good that your business meets sales, right? You don't have to force it to be positive. It's okay to say, 
it makes sense I'm tired. Yeah. It makes sense I'm frustrated. And then to put a boundary, which often means making other people a little bit uncomfortable, right? And putting yourself and your family or your business first before accommodating uh, or assuming you have to accommodate other people. And so if you're struggling with that, which I mean, I do too, every day I struggle yeah. with that kind of balance. And what helps me move forward and what helps me over those humps is saying, it's okay that I'm tired. Like it, it makes sense. And, and once I, I find that once I say to myself, it's okay, it's, it's okay that I'm frustrated. It like, it totally makes sense based on what happened. Once I have that moment, then I can move forward to say, okay, how can we do this differently? Right. Because that feeling has to be acknowledged first, because if you keep shoving it out the window that you're tired or you're not the parent you want to be or whatever that is, it's just going to fester. It's just yeah. going to grow. And so exercising self empathy um, is, you know, it, it, it it's like putting some antibiotic ointment on that wound, right? It's going to help it heal. It's, not going to be healed right away, but it's the first step in finding a solution, right? There's a reason why a ba the bandage goes on top of the antibiotic, right? <laughs> first, have to, you have to deal with the wound and acknowledge it. And, and, but I recognize for a lot of people that's, that's very, very hard. And if you find it difficult to exercise self-empathy or you think what I'm talking about right now is ridiculous and out of touch, um, I will bet that you probably have not been on the receiving end of a lot of empathy in your own life, which most people have not. And in which case it can be really helpful to get a therapist because their job is to show you what empathy is and how it feels to be on the receiving end. That will make you a better business person. In fact, actually I have a lot of friends who say that they end up talking about business with their therapist because they go in saying, Oh, I'm so stressed about this. Right. Um, it'll also help you in your customer interviews because you'll know how it feels to be on the receiving end of empathy and how powerful that is and how open it makes you want to be. And it will make you better at talking to your customers. Great advice, Michelle. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be with me today, to share uh, so openly and being so vulnerable about uh, your struggles, your successes, the things you've learned along the way. Uh, I think this is a dynamite episode. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to see you in the next conference. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. What a great discussion with Michelle Hansen. If you want to look into what they do over at Geocodio, go to geocode, that's C-O-D dot I-O. And if you want to pick up a copy of Deploy Empathy for yourself, for your team members, I highly recommend it. Go to deployempathy.com. It comes in paperback. It comes in a Kindle version. It comes in hardcover. You even can buy some Notion templates as well to go with it. One of my favorite insights from this conversation was that uh, discussion around that Henry Ford quote about building them a faster horse instead of a car and how that's actually a cautionary tale. Uh, you could be innovative. You can be thoughtful. You can be the thought leader in your industry while listening to your customers. You will only gain, not lose, by listening to your customers, understanding what their needs are, even understand the language you're using to describe their pain points so that you can use that in your marketing materials, in your sales copy, so that you're speaking directly to the customer. You can then gather all that data that you have gathered through your interviews and make the decision with your team what you should build next. 
It doesn't have to be just following orders from the customer. It could be, what do they really need? This is what they're complaining about, but what, what is a solution that would be innovative? You might sit down and review all the comments and say, okay, I don't have to follow orders directly, or maybe that's not the direction we're taking, but let's think of an innovative way to solve this problem, maybe in a way they didn't see coming, but really makes their life easier. I know that we've done this in our company. Uh, Nicole took a deep, deep dive in studying her book, Deploy Empathy, and has used it in our company to do our company interviews or customer interviews, I should say, and crafting the branding and the language that we need to uh, use, but also crafting our next products and features. In fact, our latest product that's in beta, Course Ninja, is a product that was born out of these interviews with customers uh, that we've learned how to conduct through the book Deploy Empathy. Thanks so much for listening to The $100 MBA Show. If you love what you hear, hit subscribe, hit follow on your favorite podcast app right now. By subscribing or following, you get access to over 2,000 business lessons in our archives. So go ahead and do that right now. Before I go, I want to leave you with this. Michelle and her husband run the business on their own. They just made their first hire and they do over a million in revenue. You don't need a massive team. You don't need tons of funding to have a successful business. They're doing it and they have a life and they have a child. They built it at their own pace, in their own scale. And yes, they'll have some challenges as they continue to grow, but that's business. But my point here is, is that you define success. You can build the business you want. There are no gatekeepers and boundaries as we may imagine in our head. These may be just limiting beliefs that we told ourselves. Build the business you want that fits your needs and wants and lifestyle. Thanks so much for listening and I'll check you in tomorrow's episode. I'll see you then. Take care. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.